Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and today we're going to be talking about Arena from 1989. Uh, I I gotta say, of all the movies I've ever seen that are a ripoff of Rocky set in a (laughs) space station full of weird alien creatures, this is the best. It's gotta be tops. (laughs) Yeah, it's a a pretty simple concept, but but a lot of love went into bringing it to life. So, I mean, for the most part, we're just talking, uh, when we're talking about arena here again 1989's arena not to be confused with other films that have used that title uh this is just an old-fashioned boxing crime movie except it's set on a space station and that space station is occupied by just oodles and oodles of aliens a a cornucopia of strange critters the way i was describing it uh, i was talking to rachel about it and i realized it's if you decided you wanted to make an entire movie out of the cantina scene from Star Wars. Yeah, absolutely. It, 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 uh, it, it seems to maintain that level of just, of just uh, you know, the, the, this, this alien intensity that you get in the cantina scene in Star Wars just throughout the mm-hmm. entire film. Just like everywhere you turn, it's like, oh, here's the guy with the weird, like, sort of scrotal lobes for the chin. And then here's the, the, the guy who gets his arm cut off and the weird dude with the S-shaped slug head. They're just everywhere. Uh, and, and then also there, there are lots of robots. So this is a movie that's very, very uh, cyborg focused. So it's not just mm-hmm. weird aliens, but weird aliens with interesting robotic and mechanical uh, implants. Yeah, yeah. So there's just there's there's cyborgs, there are aliens, there are alien cyborgs crawling all over the place with a few uh, humans here and there as well, just to keep it grounded, I guess, in something that that human viewers can understand. But uh, but but yeah, it's just like there's constantly something cool to look at in this in this film. And it goes. We'll get into this as we we proceed. But it goes beyond the aliens. The aliens all look incredible, but just like the costuming and set pieces in this uh, picture are also very well done, especially considering like the that the place uh, it is budget-wise. Yeah, it's not uh, something at the high budget end of the special effects spectrum, but it's got breadth and depth of special effects. So the makeup effects and every and the and the set design and everything, it's both it's both wide weird and deep weird. Yeah, this was one of many Empire International releases that uh, came out from producer Charles Band uh, prior to that folding and then him moving on to to Full Moon Entertainment. And I I don't know if, if you remember this this box art. Uh, I certainly remember this box art. Uh, the, the VHS and probably DVD box art for this film had a real big fight feel to it. It looked like an old-fashioned boxing poster, and it just said, Arena! Tonight! Championship grudge match! Man versus monster! And then it has the, like, the headshot of Steve, uh, uh, what, Steve Armstrong, and then the headshot for uh, the, the cyber minotaur horn that he's going to battle, and then it says, <laughs> for a thousand years, no human has been the champion. He wants to be the first i don't think that's true i think that's one of those many things where there's a promotional uh bit of copy for the film that totally gets the plot wrong because there's a previous human champion in this movie who's still alive so it can't have been more than i don't know a couple decades since there was a human champion yeah they don't tell us he's a thousand years old i feel like this film would mention that yeah i would think so all right well let's go ahead and listen to a little bit of the trailer audio on this one On the edge of our galaxy, there is a battleground. 
where alien warriors compete for the ultimate prize. I am champion! Will a human do battle in the arena? Now where is the challenger? Where humans have lost. You ever thought about the arena, Steve? It ain't gonna work. This guy's a human. What it takes to win. You're talking about arena fighting. It's not for me. All right, there you go. I, I think you, you get it there, too. There's a big fight feel to this picture. Yeah, the one thing that this movie didn't really have and I wish it had had was like some uh, Ric Flair style, you know, fight monologuing, like the the talking up the fights before they happen. There, there wasn't really any of that that I recall. Yeah, it's ultimately more based in the boxing world, I think. Uh, with just a little bit of kickboxing added into the flair and a little bit, like a tiny bit of wrestling added in there, but mostly its uh, its heart is in the boxing world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so who are the people behind this movie? All right, well, let's start at the the top. The director is Peter Manugian, and this guy, this guy was born out of Charles Band's Empire International Pictures. He directed a segment in their second feature, an anthology film titled The Dungeon Master. And that was his first directional credit, following work as an assistant director on a a string of band-directed films, as well as uh, some other pictures such as Galaxy of Terror. He was a production manager on several films, including Humanoids from the Deep, and a lovely little 1982 thriller filmed uh, uh, on Tybee Island right here in Georgia titled The Slayer. Hmm. Which um, I don't don't think you've seen this one, Joe. I've I've seen it. It's... um, it's not a super weird picture, so it's not something we'll probably ever talk about here, but it is filmed on Tybee Island. It's a it's a it's a genre film that was made in Georgia back when that meant something. <laughs> and um and there's a sequence that, that involves like a old ruined theater that's really creepy. And today you can go to that theater and it's like fully restored. Uh so it's it's a really weird experience. But uh yeah, the Slayer, he was uh, involved in that. Now, you already mentioned this really great uh, box art for this movie. The other thing that I think I'm familiar with this director from is having directed a movie that I haven't seen yet, but has one of the best posters in movie history, and that's The Eliminators or Eliminators. That's right. From 86, that's another Empire International picture. And that's one that that I own but have not watched in full yet. I have a feeling we'll come back to it when it, when oh, yeah. it's time to return to the uh, the work of Manoogian. The poster features a, you know, that classic rushing at you posture where the main cast is running right into your face. And mm-hmm. one of them is a human tank with treads. And I think another yep. one is a ninja. And one of them is some kind of uh, mad scientist. It, it looks like a really great ensemble. Uh, yeah. And and there's some wonderful connections in that film as well. But we'll we'll, we'll save that for a later day. I'm sure we'll get to the Eliminators. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the writers here. Um, it's just kind of interesting that it's... Um, this uh, team of writers, uh, Danny Bilson and Paul DeMio, uh, these two got their start in the Charles Band camp with pictures such as 1984's Trancers and 86's The Eliminators. And they later got into video game writing and recently wrote the screenplay for the 2020 film The Five Bloods by Spike Lee. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and, and speaking of like the, the writing behind this, I, was, I, was looking, I looked up to see what Michael Weldon of, uh, of, of Psychotronic had to say about um, arena. And he points out that the plot has a lot in common with the Frederick Brown short story arena that, quote, had already been done twice on Star Trek and once on The Outer Limits. <laughs> so I, I looked into this and uh, there is the story indeed titled Arena. 
And it has to do with this situation where these two intergalactic um, factions are about to go to war and just, you know, annihilate each other or one side will be annihilated. Uh, and instead, an, an even more advanced civilization becomes involved and makes one soldier from one side fight the other soldier from the other side to decide the whole thing. This is robot jocks again. <laughs> uh, similar, similar, yeah, idea. Like it, it comes yeah. down to trial by champion. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, champion battle. Uh, so it, the, the Star Trek angle here, though, is that you have that classic 67 Trek episode arena. This is the Gorn episode where the exact same thing happens. And it, uh, if I'm reading this correctly, they ended up crediting Frederick Brown, uh, perhaps due to just plot similarities. I'm not sure if they actually adapted it or it's certainly or it's more of one of these things like they didn't want to get sued. Uh, but that's the connection there. There was also an Outer Limits episode uh, from 64 titled Fun and Games that apparently has some similarities to this. But with this 1989 picture, I mean, aside from the fact that we are dealing with sort of gladiatorial combat in space with aliens, uh, I don't I don't really see I don't think there's anything in this film that that leads you to believe that this is anything other than entertainment sports. Right. This is just <laughs> this is just sports going on there. There's nothing at stake as it's not like robot jocks where this is deciding who controls parts of uh, of the planet. There is some sense that the dignity of humankind is at stake, right? Okay. Because aliens, all the good fighters are aliens, and there's this widespread understanding that a human can't really be competitive in the arena anymore. There was this one guy who'd been a fighter previously, but since him, there have been no human champions, and humans are just weak and puny and not even worth considering And if you're, if you're trying to make your bracket of the elite fighters. Yeah, yeah, that, that's pretty much that's the only thing that's really at stake here, at least on a more than personal level, uh, is that it's about the prestige of humanity in a universe that largely doesn't seem to need them anymore. But there right. are a lot of them around for some reason. I mean, why would you why would you want to have a human boxer on your side when you could have like a 20 foot long grasshopper slug? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, the alien and cyborg uh, fighters are a lot more interesting looking. Yeah. Uh, but so I guess we should get to who this actual fighter is. And now I I don't know what else I'm familiar with this actor from, but he looked familiar. So I, I should have done the cross check on IMDb, but I never got there with him. But it's this actor who plays the main character, the human fighter, Steve Armstrong, who is just uh, I was trying to decide decide what exactly his energy is. And it is Fruit of the Loom briefs model. Yes. You know? Yeah, it should come as no surprise that he he was a model uh, prior to getting into uh, into cinema. Uh, yeah, his name is Paul uh, Paul Satterfield, and yeah, he's just he's an incredibly handsome six four um, actor with blonde hair and like a flawless body. He looks like he was cloned out of the uh, the Frankenfurter vats, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. He's just all like Rocky Horror and Flash Gordon. Um, Say hello to Beef, yeah. Yeah, he has a, he has a certain amount of um, Christopher Reeves in his face, you know? Okay, uh, I see that. Yeah, so he, very handsome chap. And uh, it, it, it's, uh, he apparently got his start, his first film uh, role of note was playing one of the shirtless kids in the Raft segment of Creepshow 2 in 1987. That's it. That's where I know him from. He's the right. he's uh, the jock guy in that. That would make sense. Yeah, obviously yeah, he's, he's not the nerd. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, uh, apparently his uh, his mother 
was a musician, Priscilla Coolidge, the sister of Rita Coolidge. And his dad was a firefighter who died in the line of duty. But then his stepdad growing up was music legend Booker T. Jones of the instrumental R&B funk group Booker T. and the MGs. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, I think Paul's perfectly great in this. Like he's a, you know, he's he's a beautiful human specimen. He gives a solid performance. He brings a... (laughs) And this is this is something that's sometimes hard to like really nail down in a film, but he really brings a believable physicality to to this role. You know, like he doesn't just yeah, okay. look the part, but he kind of he moves like an athlete. I think he was a former athlete, so mm-hmm. I found myself kind of buying these scenes where he's uh, you know kickboxing against uh, massive aliens. Like for some reason, it felt authentic. Yeah, I will say in his. Um uh, sort of the, one of the handicaps operating in his favor is that I think this script does not ask a lot of him. You know, he, it does not require a lot of nuanced emotional performance. Right. <laughs> like he, he, he mostly just like stands around and then does fights and looks good while he's doing either one. And that, that's, that's about all that is required of, of Steve Armstrong. Pretty much. Now uh, he has a, he has a mentor in this uh, film mm-hmm. and that is the character Shorty. Now, while Rocky had Burgess Meredith to, like, train him and, you know, be be in his corner to sort of bring him up into the world of elite fighting, uh, yeah, Steve Armstrong has Shorty, who is like a cross between Burgess Meredith and Goro, because he's got four <laughs> arms. But he also, uh, he he's a, he's a wisecracking, he's just like a pun city, a, a pun factory. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, this this character is a lot of fun. Um, in part because the 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 four hands gimmick is actually pretty well done. It's a mix of puppetry and then also like some sight gags involving somebody you know clearly standing behind the actor to add the extra set of arms as they like give uh, give um, Steve Armstrong a rub down after a match. So you got four different hands on him uh, giving mm-hmm. him a massage. Oh yeah, that sort of thing. But uh, this this character is played by uh, an actor, folk musician, um, and uh, an and comedian by the name of Hamilton Camp. Was Hamilton Camp ever a hobbit in the Peter Jackson movies? Because he 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 has that kind of um, his face looks kind of familiar from that sort of context. It looks like he might have been hanging around the bar in the Shire telling stories. He looks like he could have. I, I'm. I'm I didn't see that, or I don't remember that from his uh, IMDb page. But yeah, he's um, he is a short fella. He was uh, he was five two. Apparently, did a lot of like short gags over time. But um, I mentioned the folk musician thing. He actually has a, like a real legit musical background. Uh, he most famously as Bob Camp with Bob Gibson. Uh, this is like a '60s folk duo. Mm-hmm. They did this album at the Gate of Horn, which you can uh, you can find uh, wherever you stream your music. Uh, and he. Yeah, he had, they had a whole string of albums too as Hamilton Camp, and you can you can look him up. He has this beautiful singing voice. He's doing a lot of these folk numbers, uh, uh, but he was also did, he also did a lot of TV work. He did a lot of voice work. Uh, if anyone out there ever watched Darkwing Duck, he was the voice of Gizmo Duck. This, do you remember this character, Joe? I'm not sure. I do. Maybe, maybe if I saw a video, like Ro, it's like RoboCop. If RoboCop were a duck uh, and <laughs> and had like a um, uh, like a, a unicycle uh, motorcycle wheel for his oh, lower okay. half. Yeah. Oh, now that's ringing some bells. Okay. Yeah. I so definitely Giz- did watch Darkwing Duck. So yeah, maybe that's back there somewhere. Yep. He was Gizmo Duck. Uh, also, and this is going to become even more important shortly. Uh, he appeared on Star Trek Deep Space Nine 
playing a Ferengi uh, named, uh, let's see, what was it? Lek. He played a Ferengi named Lek. Okay. All right, the next character of note, we have this character, Quinn, who's like the good boxing promoter, played by Claudia Christian, Mm -hmm. Uh, probably most famous for playing Commander Susan uh, Ivanova on the sci-fi series Babylon 5 from from 1994 through 1998. Uh, But she's also a successful voice actor, and she has acted in many of your favorite video games. If If you look her up, you'll see that, oh, yeah, she was in that, she was in that. Uh, she's been in several that I've played as well. Wasn't Babylon 5, I, I never watched it, but wasn't it a show about a space station populated by all kinds of aliens? Yeah, I, I never watched it religiously, like enough to actually follow the, the larger plot. But I remember mm. catching it from time to time and finding it pretty exciting. It had some good makeup, though she was not one of the uh, the the characters that were alien. She was just a human, I believe. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd say she's good in this movie. Yeah, yeah, she's good. You know, uh, again, yeah. it's not requiring a lot of her. This movie doesn't require a lot of heavy lifting from its acting roles for the most part, but she's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now we got to get into the the villains who are just wonderful. Uh, so <laughs> there's this villain called Rogor, mm-hmm. which is one of those things where like you can write the name down when you're writing a script, and I think it works better on the page than it does when people say it out loud. Because every yeah. time people say Rogor, it just doesn't sound like a real name yeah rogor if that makes any sense I don't know. no no yeah i i would agree with that uh rogor is played by uh mark almio the um the, this is an actor that you that everyone has definitely seen in something um he played everett one of uh cohagen's goons in the original total recall Ooh, wow and most notably he played the sinister cardassian gold ducket is that, am I saying that right? I haven't watched Deep Space Nine in a long time. Was that gold? I, I don't know. Or is it Ducat? I'm not sure. Maybe Ducat. Uh, but anyway, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, he was like the villainous Cardassian that showed up all the time. In Arena, he plays like a um, this weird debonair space vampire sugar daddy who's kind of mm-hmm. like uh, Jason Isaacs a little bit in vampire mode, but without that deep Jason Isaacs voice. Yeah, he's one of these actors that I think of as like a skull first actor who does a lot of acting, yes. like their skull's going to jump out of their face. And uh, and he also has a really prominent neck. I, I read that on the set of Deep Space Nine, his nickname was The Neck. <laughs> oh, that's um, funny. I didn't notice The Neck as much. But now that you say that, I sort of I, – I was thinking of him as like a, yeah, facial bone structure kind of actor. Uh, yeah. A, a forehead and jawline first. Yes. So, yeah, he makes for a fun lead villain in this, a lot of typical villain stuff. But, of course, any villain needs a henchman, and he's got one in Weasel. Weasel is great. Weasel was the highlight of the movie. From Well, I don't know. There are a lot of highlights. Most of them were creatures, and Weasel is a great creature. He, he <laughs> was a human rat creature. Like, he's kind of a purple human who has whiskers and, and rat teeth. Yep, played by Armin Shimmerman. Who, uh, who most of you would probably recognize, um, at least with makeup on, because on Deep Space Nine, he played the Ferengi Quark. Hmm. So this is like the third Deep Space Nine connection in this film. Uh, he also did, did a lot of other work. He was the principal, Principal Snyder on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, okay. Yeah, and uh, he's done a lot of voice work as well. And I, I also read that he's a, a Shakespearean scholar and an author who wrote a book with uh, an author by the name of Michael Scott about John D. titled The Merchant Prince that also seems to feature aliens and time travel. Okie doke. So, uh, you know, that sounds fun. Yeah. Um, 
We mentioned the last human champion who is not a thousand years old, and uh, he doesn't have much of a role in this. He's just kind of a, a now he's just a homeless bum wandering the tubes. Mm-hmm. But he's played by this guy, Ken Clark, who was the lead in 1959's Attack of the Giant Leeches, which is a film that Mystery Science Theater 3000 fans may remember. Or you may have seen it several times and still not remember it. <laughs> they had memorable trash bag monsters, as I recall, like the yeah. giant leeches were like it was, it was one of these very grimy looking pictures that kind of felt weird. It kind of felt real because it was just so grimy. Was this one of the ones that uh, was just like a blanket over dogs? It was of it was of similar um, quality. Yes. All right, up next, Frank Welker did creature voices in this. And I, I suspect, that, I'm, but I'm not sure, I think he does the voice of our, our lead uh, boxing villain, Horn, mm. um, who's kind of like a cyber minotaur. Uh-huh. Um, but Frank Welker is, uh, is a name that anyone who's, who's looked at the credits on an animated show or a film will be familiar with. Welker is everywhere. He's voiced everything. He may even be voicing you right now <laughs> while you're listening to this show. Yeah, there are a lot of good growling alien voices in this, but we should get more into that later. Because I, I must admit, the version of this movie that I saw, the sound wasn't super great, I think, because I most of the time could not understand Horn. But we'll have to explain more about Horn when we get into the, the full plot breakdown. <laughs> All right. So as we discussed before, uh, the executive producer on this one was Charles Band. And of course, Richard Band did the music. Um, and then, the, you know, so it's, it's a band picture for sure. Under Empire Pictures imprint came out the same year as Robot Jocks. Oh, yeah. But but again, the look of the this film, I think, is really notable. Um, Kathy Clark did the costume design. Um, she's the one who also gave us all of those wonderful jumpsuits and robot jocks. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and some really signature looks in other band-produced films as well, like Metal Storm and Terror Vision. So I, I feel like there's a futuristic, fun look to the costumes in this that, that certainly maybe never looks like high budget, but it also never looks cheap, you know? Like it, you yeah. don't feel like you're seeing things duct taped together from the local thrift shop or anything. There is a difference between good, cheap special effects and good, cheap set design and bad, cheap special effects and bad, cheap set design. These, these are the, the good, cheap corner of that, that, uh, that scatter plot. Yeah. So uh, in terms of the various special effects people and makeup people involved in this, I mean, it, that's really one of the most remarkable things about this film is like all the aliens look so good. Mm-hmm. Um, so like even Horn is physically played by this guy, Mike Deke, who is, uh, who is a special effects guy that's worked on a ton of films and occasionally plays creatures. Um, uh, there's some other key names uh, worth mentioning, including the late John Carl uh, uh, Buchler. Uh, he was the special special ma- special makeup effects artist who did special effects makeup or makeup on such films as Reanimator, Friday the Thirteenth Part Seven. He actually directed Friday the Thirteenth Part Seven. Oh, did he? Wow, yeah, I didn't realize yeah. that. Okay, well, yeah. Okay, even even more reason to celebrate his name. Uh, he worked on various <laughs> Corman and Band pictures as well. Mm-hmm. Friday the Thirteenth Part Seven is another movie that is. Uh, I don't think anyone could make the argument that it's a good movie. You probably couldn't argue that about any of the Friday movies, but it has wonderful special effects. Some of the best of the series. That's the one with the psychic girl versus Jason, right? Yes. Okay. See, I feel like instantly that's the one you can see. Like, how many of the Jason films can you really signify? Like, there's the one where he's in space, there's the one where he's in New York, and there's the one where he fights Psychic Girl, right? Yeah. Uh, the In reverse order, that's seven, eight, and ten. 
Okay, yeah. I mean, aside from that, you can say, okay, there's one where he fights Freddy, and then there's one where he... There's one where, where it's they, not Jason. Yeah, and then there's the oh, one yeah. where he they say he goes to hell, but does he actually go to hell on that one? Uh, it's unclear. Okay. <laughs> Uh, let's see. Other people of note, uh, Alan Monroe is credited as additional designer, colon, creature. And he's a guy who worked on films like Beetlejuice, Men in Black, Near Dark, just to name a few. David Stipes was visual effects uh, supervisor, and he worked on Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Star Trek The Next Generation, and Star Trek Voyager. Okay, so we're hitting some familiar nodes over and over. This seems like this may have been a sort of network recruitment uh, effect here. Yeah, it really has an embarrassment of riches from the on the special effects side because also you've got the Screaming Mad George crew in on this one as well. So um, I, I don't know if everyone out there is familiar with Screaming Mad George, but they're a, a Japanese-born special effects makeup flesh wizard <laughs> who seems to have had their hands or claws in a ton of just wonderfully fleshy special effects films, including but not limited to uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3 and 4. Okay. Society, Freaked, Big Trouble okay. in Little China, wow. Predator, uh, and then he also directed a film uh, titled The Giver, which is kind of this um, Japanese uh, flesh superhero suit picture that also has Mark Hamill in it. It's mm-hmm. a weird one. Uh, he also worked on Necronomicon Book of the Dead. Oh, is that the one that I was, I've was? i been trying to find a copy of, but it's out mm-hmm. of print? Like you, or maybe it was never in print in, a, in an appropriate region? Yeah, we've asked around about that one, and um, yeah. it's like, what, you can get it on Greek DVD or something like something that? like that. <laughs> yeah. um, so anyway, yeah, Screaming Mad George, uh, I feel like he, his, his work always stands out to me. Even if, I, even if I'm not sure he's involved in the picture, I can, I can sense his presence because there's this, um, this sense of the, the, the stuff that he creates. They just feel, it feels really alive, you know, with, with synthetic flesh. Synthetic flesh. Okay, and one last weird connection on this one. Uh, Victor Chorjansky was the first assistant director on this film, and he was also the first assi- first assistant director on the 1986 adaptation of The Name of the Rose. Wow. That probably meaningless connection there, but one I had to latch on to nonetheless. Wow, I really did not expect so many solid connections to, to well-known works from this space boxing movie. Yeah, especially all those Star Trek connections. It's basically yeah. like latched to the – it should be just a, a, a part of the Star Trek canon, I think, at this point. Absolutely. Yeah, like the Enterprise just arrives there. They come in. They have to sort out a boxing uh, commission dispute there <laughs> without violating the Prime Directive. Well, anyway, are, are you ready to get into the full plot breakdown? Let's do it. Okay, so it starts with uh, the the opening credits. You just kind of panning around in space, uh, watching the satellite of love roll by these rocky planetoids that look very much like the the uh, models in Mystery Science Theater. And then suddenly we cut to inside the space station, and there's a fight. It's this sort of boxing match in front of hundreds of cheering fans, and it's between this this gross, veiny alien goat man with horns who uh, looks a little bit Freddy Kruegerish. So think Freddy Krueger, mm-hmm. goat, horns, yeah, that whole thing. Um, the other fighter, I think, is even more difficult to describe. He's some kind of alien lizard man wearing a giant spherical 
casing, like a big garbage can lid around his upper body. And he's got these flailing robot arms. So he's not a robot. He, there is supposed to be some kind of organic alien inside it who maybe doesn't have arms. I'm not sure because the arms are just the robot arms that are on the outside of his suit. Um, but then those arms are not doing anything. So the way the fight goes is his robot arms are just f- literally just flopping around while the goat man wails on him mercilessly. And we learn that these fighters are named Horn and Spinner. So the, the scary goat man is Horn and the the robot lizard thing with the flailing arms is Spinner. And we notice that each fighter has a colored spotlight shining on them. One is red and one is blue. And uh, we get an explanation of how that works in a bit, but I still never really fully understand it. They say uh, there's like a voiceover that says, in order to balance strength between species, the arena uses the Seiko 3000 handicapping system. The handicappers decrease the fighter's strength. And so they explain, I think it's that these spotlights somehow make stronger fighters weaker until they're equal does that sound right to yes you? okay that is the sense i got from it and uh and and it's something i'll, I'll come back to towards the end of the the, the program here to, to discuss but yeah i think the idea is you have different species that are going to be naturally uh you know better at fighting it's kind of right. like if you have we're going to have a boxing match between a human being and a bengal tiger yeah. <laughs> you know, this system would it would make it to where the Bengal tiger and a weaponless human could at least have some level of competitive match, assuming the training was in place. OK, cool. Uh, and then so we, we, we see the fight play out. Horn is just beating on Spinner and then Horn eventually wins this round by knocking Spinner out of the ring. So it seems mm-hmm. like maybe there's some kind of sumo rules in play. Yeah, there's a sense of sumo and that it's uh, you know ultimately about knocking the uh, opponent out of bounds. Yeah. Uh, but again, I just, you know, I said this earlier, but it is so wonderful. Like the crowd is just this cornucopia of bizarre creatures. It's Star mm-hmm. Wars cantina scene, but multiplied times 50. Yeah. And then uh, we immediately meet Rogor and Weasel. So again, Rogor is the, 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 the debonair space vampire guy. I mean, I don't think he's supposed to be a vampire, but be, I, I say that because he's got the, the hair and the face of a guy who gets cast as one of these smooth vampires in a movie like the, in like the Twilight series or something. I could never understand in this film if his face is supposed to be like if they painted it or if he's supposed to be greasy, like physically greasy. Or well, some he is sort very of, shiny, yeah. Yeah, he's a very shiny uh, character, but not I mean, not so much that it's completely clear that he's supposed to be some sort of humanoid alien or not. Yeah, I, I'm not quite sure about Rogor, but definitely that Weasel, who we see <laughs> screwing around in the crowd, he like drops a firecracker on somebody who's selling popcorn or something. Yeah, uh, and Weasel, Weasel's just a his you know it's a very nominative determinism. Like he he's a weaselly guy. He has a rat like face. And he's always up to no good. And then we see Weasel. Um, Weasel is sort of the enforcer for Rogor. He's sort of his fixer. He does his dirty business. And at Rogor's say-so, uh, Weasel goes down and we see him give Horn an injection of something in between rounds. It's, I think, suggesting that they're giving him some kind of illegal performance-enhancing drug. You know, they're shooting him up with vitamin R. And then that makes Horn into a super beast. And he just freaks out and, and runs in there and busts up Spinner really bad. 
Yeah, yeah. Not only is he a monster against some sort of like Freddy Krueger minotaur, but he's also at least half machine, you know, mm-hmm. ha- heavily cybernetically enhanced, and he's also on some sort of space steroid. Right. And then meanwhile, we, we cut away to a different place uh, where we're, we're in a space station diner where the young Steve Armstrong, our hero, again, the guy who looks like a Fruit of the Loom underwear model. You would see him in a catalog in the 90s showing off his, his, his glutes. And uh, he is working as some kind of short order cook in this space diner where everybody's mm-hmm. watching the arena fight on TV. And he's watching it longingly because, you know, it's obvious from the beginning that he wants to be in there. He wishes it was him uh, beating up on Spinner. But I I have to say, Steve Armstrong does not look like a short order cook. He's like too tall to operate the uh, the cooking apparatus in front of him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's he's a very tall guy. Like, like again, he's like six four, and when he's up there, when he's in there next to Shorty, he just looks like an absolute giant. Yeah. Uh, so Steve and his buddy Shorty are both working in the diner, and they're clearly they're overworked and overwhelmed. Uh, the customers, there are too many customers, and they're unruly. And Steve is trying to cook. It looks like he's trying to cook over an open fire, which is kind of strange. That would be <laughs> happening inside a space. And Shorty is at the counter dealing with unruly customers. And they sort of steal a joke from the Star Wars holiday special. You know, Shorty's trying to get everything done, but he's like, I have only got four hands. <laughs> That's one of a few different places in this movie where I thought of the uh, the holiday special. Um, though I think in every case, it, it does a better job than the holiday special. But of course, how could it do anything but, right? Right, yeah. But anyway, somehow a fight breaks out in the diner, and then Steve has to throw down to defend his buddy Shorty, and he ends up kicking this fish head type alien through a bunch of plate glass, and immediately Steve and Shorty are informed via like a voiceover that comes on in the PA system uh, that they are both fired. They are terminated for, I don't know, I guess for getting into a fight at the diner. And so they both lose their jobs, and they walk out of the diner, apparently leaving it completely unstaffed, and this fish head guy's lying in a bunch of glass. And I, I have to point out here... There was so already I, I mentioned one of the shorty puns, but I've only got four hands here. Actually, I don't know if that's a pun. Sorry if I'm using the words wrong. All the, the corny jokes. And the next one comes in where Shorty, he's bringing him rapid fire. And one of the things he says is, were you cloned yesterday? But that makes me wonder, is there a background in this movie where, in fact, no one is, quote, born anymore, but everyone is cloned? And also, what is what is the distinction? Because aren't cloned creatures still born yeah, I don't know. It's just how they this is how they talk in the future at this point. Cuz okay. yeah, they don't they don't get into really any world building in this on uh, uh, you know aside from just the purely visual. Yeah. Um what you see is what you get. Uh the movie's not going to really hold your hand and explain anything aside from just basically how the fight works. No, it's not going to robot jocks lengths to sort of uh show show you the whole situation. Yeah. Uh, But anyway, so now being out of the job, Steve is broke and he gets kicked out of his apartment. And so he has to shack up with Shorty. And it turns out at first I thought this they like open this weird door in a hallway. And I thought that they were going into Shorty's house. And so I I thought the implication was that Shorty lives in this dank access tunnel. But no, Mm -hmm. it turns out they just have to go through this dank access tunnel to get to a place known as the tubes, which is I think it is like the the poor part of the space 
station. It's where the non-rich inhabitants live, and it's kind of Blade Runner-y. It's just there's like steam and fog everywhere, and a bunch of people just hanging around on the yeah. What what would be the the equivalent of the streets inside the space station? Yeah. And anyway, while they're walking, we find out that Steve used to be a fighter in what's known as the human circuit, uh, and that he came to the space station hoping that he could fight in the arena, but they lament that there's just no room for human fighters now. It's all cyborg aliens. That's the only thing anybody's interested in. And it's widely known that no human could ever be a contender again. Yeah. And I mean, more than that, like just how entertaining is it to watch humans battle humans if you've got these other creatures to watch instead? Like, I mean, would you watch two humans battle if you could watch like a space scorpion and a sea blob battle each other? No, exactly. No, I want to see Chewbacca versus Jabba the Hutt, not human versus human. Uh, So they get to Shorty's apartment. They spend the night. The next morning, Shorty's in the middle of cooking something that looks really revolting. It's just this, like, beige slime. And uh, they talk about how uh, eggs are an expensive luxury item. So I don't know. I guess that's sort of oblique world building. And then there's a knock at the door. And Steve answers it. These two goons are standing there. And one of them just punches him right in the face, which is (laughs) great. Uh, These two goons bust in. They they beat Steve up. The fight moves out into the streets again of the tubes and uh and and a, and a big fight scene ensues and of course steve wins this encounter uh and mm-hmm. we shortly found out that found out that these are the goons of another boxing uh, promoter these are quinn's goons right so claudia christian playing quinn shows up and we find out that the the fish head guy that steve beat up in the diner was actually an arena fighter elite level and the guys there to beat up Steve, I guess, could you figure this out? Were they supposed to be giving him some sort of tryout at at Quinn's prompting, or were they just out to get revenge for him beating up one of their guys? I think it was just street justice. That was what I got out of it. But either way, once Quinn shows up, she's clearly interested in getting Steve into the arena. She she wants him on her team. But uh, Steve, uh, at first, he he refuses the call. You know, he will not heed the call to adventure. Steve just wants a ticket back to Earth. But unfortunately, he can't afford it. So then there is a great scene where Steve and Shorty have to get some money to get Steve a ticket back to Earth. So they end up going to a casino because Shorty has a guaranteed system to win the big bucks. (laughs) And I got to say about one of my favorite things about this whole casino scene is that they got to it's like a speakeasy. So they got to say the password to get in through the secret door you know they open up the little slot in the door and uh, i love the alien who's operating the door the password is swordfish and the alien who's operating the door has these massive i don't know how this like tusk trunk apparatus coming way to it's got like a a two foot long chin Mm -hmm. yes Yeah, I, again, the, the, the awesome alien uh, designs and alien makeup effects are just in every corner of the film. Yeah. Uh, but Shorty's got a guaranteed system to win the big bucks at some kind of alien gambling thing, and it, it doesn't go so well. Uh, I don't know. Did you have general thoughts about this alien casino? I really loved this scene. And I have to say, I, I am not a Last Jedi hater. I, I enjoyed The Last Jedi, but I was not a huge fan of its casino sequence. This mm. this casino sequence is the better alien casino. Oh, well, I mean, I, I, I don't remember the casino sequence in Last Jedi as much, uh, which maybe that that says something about it, yeah. but I don't, you know, I certainly don't remember disliking it. I liked this one, but again, I just saw this film the other day. So, um, 
yeah, it's it's really good. It also has uh, like a dancing hologram lady, which is another point in the film that reminded me directly of the Star Wars Holiday Special. Oh, right. Yes. But again, it's another scene that's just a feast for the eyes. There's all sorts of crazy stuff going on. Well, Lots of cool looking aliens. Well, wait, I don't know. Is, is the dan- if, if I, I might be forgetting, is the dancing hologram lady in the casino itself or is she only in the bar they go to afterwards? Maybe she's in the bar afterwards. Okay, okay. no, we'll get to that in just a second. No, first we got to mention that – can you explain the plot here to me? For some reason, violence breaks out in the casino and I don't – I didn't understand, understand why. Maybe I should have gone back and watched it again. But suddenly – weasels there and people are shooting lasers at each other and i didn't know who was shooting at who or why there's some alien there's like this alien with an aluminum head this like reflective silver metal head i think those are the 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 robocops i think that's the thing is the cops showed up they busted up the joint and so in the chaos um shorty just grabs some money right right okay (laughs) yes all right so they grab the money and and shorty and steve get out of there and then they go to a bar and this is where the hologram lady happens so in in my i wondered to what extent this was because of the degraded audio in the version that i watched or if it's like this naturally but uh Steve and Shorty sit at a bar and they watch this singing, dancing green hologram lady. And the music that she is singing over is audio horror. It just it's it's like the one of the worst sounds I've ever heard. It's the sound of a a K hole spiral around the thought of what it's like to be dead. Yes, this was kind of what I got out of the DVD copy of the film as well. Okay, uh, because I think it's a, a an incident of. Something that I don't, I can't, I don't, don't, I don't like it. It's not like I, this is something I enjoy listening to, but I, I enjoy encountering it in films. And that is when somebody was clearly called upon to create futuristic music, mm-hmm. um, which is a unique challenge. Like, how, what do you do? How do you, right. you're going to try and create something that we don't have now that maybe we wouldn't like now, but we would like in the future. Right. And so a lot of times that in, like, sometimes they'll just create something that's maybe, um, you know, uh, tying into current trends and fringe trends that are emerging, you know, like if it's some sort of a cyberpunk film, like they'll suddenly there'll be a bunch of like reggae and you'll be like, okay, mm-hmm. you know, all right, it's some sort of reggae or maybe they've taken some dub or something or it's whatever is popular and new now. But other times they do this, which I don't know, it's kind of like it's sort of space jazzy, but but it it, it doesn't feel it doesn't feel like this could possibly be the music of the future, but you right. understand what they were trying to do. It's a, like, again, it's a, it's a, I'm sure it's a fascinating musical exercise to engage on. Oh, what, for whatever it was supposed to be, it was like this, one of the most awful sounds I've ever heard. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, just this horrible dissonance and everybody sitting at the bar is clearly just watching enraptured. They're watching this hologram lady and they're like, she's so amazing. There's this Admiral Akbar looking dude whose eyes are swiveling around. <laughs> like fan blades and he's sticking his tongue out yes that's the, uh, one of the great things like just little moments like this have uh-huh. extravagant extravagant um uh, special effects uh with the makeup yeah. and that like it's not just that there's an alien watching this like no he's like every like orifice of his face is involved in the situation in this scene i also really like there's a guy in the background you don't see him much but he's sort of in the back whose head just looks like a huge gray clay pot and his eyes are just holes in the pot now do have we met skull yet at this point or does he show up later oh yeah i think we've met skull skull is oh gee how to describe skull skull looks like one of the deadites from army of darkness but with cybernetic implants 
Yeah, he's he's like a cyborg brain augmentation junkie who's also a hacker. So, yeah, he looks absolutely horrifying. Um, and, and I say he, but I don't know. I know that the actor who played them uh, is a he, but I, I, have, I have no idea if Skull is supposed to be male or female. Mm-hmm. At first, I kind of thought maybe this is like this is Weasel's partner. Their life partners or something, and uh, huh. I, I don't think that's the case. I think they just work together. Okay, but uh, but yeah, Skull is is horrendous looking, uh, and is part of the the whole criminal enterprise here. Uh, so uh, yeah, so Weasel is on the scene in the bar. Weasel shows up and pulls a gun on Steve and Shorty and takes them back to Rogor for some classic villain intimidation. Uh, the Rogor's like, you owe me money. Steve needs to get money to pay Rogor back for what? What does he need to pay him back for? Did they steal money from his casino? Is yes. That, so okay. that was Rogor's money that they stole from the busted up casino, okay. which then Shorty used to buy the Earth ticket. A and ticket, so yes. when yeah, so when Rogor like brings him in, he's like, I want my money back. You stole it from me. And he's like, I have the ticket. And then he's like, this isn't even this doesn't cover the cost of what you stole. I want the actual money. So they hold Shorty hostage while they wait for Steve to go get the money to pay back. And there's a great little scene in there where uh, I guess the hours are going by. And then you see that Shorty and Weasel are both are playing cards with each other. And I think maybe they're both trying to cheat. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, of course, Steve comes back and he gets the money. He bails out Shorty. Uh, and where did he get the money? Well, it's in advance because he went to Quinn and he mm. promised to box aliens for her. Right. And so now this is basically the whole setup. How are we going to get this guy in the ring fighting aliens? Well, now we're here. Right. And now now the movie is just kicked into full gear. It's in arena mode until the end. Uh, so, yeah. And th- I would say maybe the highlight of the whole movie for me was Steve's first fight, which is yes. where he fights a giant dinosaur slug. Like it's a it's a slug with sort of Tyrannosaurus Rex head and little T Rex arms, but with giant grasshopper legs and a Freddy Krueger face. Yeah, this creature's name is Sloth, and it is incredible. It's just an incredible like. They were so ambitious in creating and bringing this character to life on screen. And I feel like they really pulled it off. Like, I totally bought this as an organic creature. It's mm-hmm. just it's splendid to behold. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't know. It's, it's absurd, like, watching them fight because Steve is throwing punches at it. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it's like this, this Jabba the Hutt grasshopper is like 20 times bigger than him. Uh, but he does eventually win. I think he he figure, he does some kind of special little tactic. He targets its nerve or something. What, 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 do yeah, he like punches he it in a nerve on its side. I think Shorty's like telling him like go for the go for the sensory nerve, go for the sensory nerve, and so he does. Ya bum uh, rock, ya bum. <laughs> Uh, but it's victory for Steve. So Steve wins this first big fight, and it's fame, it's glory, it's money. He's instantly a celebrity. The The audience eats it up, uh, and then everything's coming up Steve Armstrong. And then, like, that night, he's – I think it's supposed to be that night. He's, like, at a swanky club. So he goes from, you know, uh, sleeping on couches in, in the tubes to being at a swanky club overnight. Yeah. it's uh, and, and really, I guess this is kind of a typical um, – uh, structure for some sort of a boxing or um, competition film, right? Because mm. what's important, the first big match, and then you kind of montage all the middle stuff, and then it's going to be the last big match, like the right. championship match. Yes, exactly. So, uh, and but th- there's a there's a funny part I thought 
when Steve and Quinn are talking after his first big victory. So they're out at the Swanky Club. They're in a booth. And she starts telling this story about how her father used to run a stable of fighters in the arena. But mm-hmm. that was back when it was a real sport before Rogor turned it into a business. She says this with <laughs> contempt. And it's this odd nostalgia for the early days of this brutal gladiatorial institution. <laughs> I don't know. I don't really get it. But the the message is that the arena could be a beautiful, noble thing. But under Rogor, it's all about that cash. What if this uh, this competition used to settle intergalactic um, uh, (laughs) turmoil and then it just got too commercial for everybody? They're like, we'll just do it for entertainment and we'll just have actual wars. That would make sense. You used to be champion warfare like robot jocks, but now Mm -hmm. or like in the the short story. But yeah, now now it's just all about Rogor raking in the big bucks. And so she said, Quinn says, I'm just trying to keep my dad's dream alive. (laughs) Um, so we find out that Horn, remember Horn from the beginning, he is still mm-hmm. Rogor's top fighter, and he comes up to Steve and Quinn in the club and menaces them in some ways. But again, I could not understand anything he was saying. Occasionally, I picked out the word human that I assume he was using as a pejorative, and Horn, he, Horn also says his own name a lot. Yeah, uh, I think this is a Frank Welker voice. And he could have just been saying anything and you would know what he's saying. Like, he's just saying he's great, humans suck, and uh, he's going to beat Armstrong in the next big match. I must break him, or I must break yeah. you, but it's but it's like Goro voice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, here, but here we go into montage mode. We're just sort of like quickly... Uh, montaging through Steve beating a bunch of different aliens up. It's like the the musical scene in Raging Bull with the slow motion fights. And uh, I think at mm-hmm. one point it does a split screen. It like shows you four different fights at the same time. Yeah, he's just working his way up the ranks, fighting various aliens. Uh, but then eventually the commissioner of the arena forces Rogor to give Steve a chance to fight Horn for the title. And Rogor is not happy about this because it's his fighter, mm-hmm. Horn, who I don't know why he doesn't want. I mean, I, Horn should be fighting people, right, if he's the champion. Uh, right. And if this other guy's popular, you think like that sounds like a big money match. Shouldn't yeah. everybody want that match? But uh, again, you just kind of roll with it, I guess. Yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It seems like Rogor should be fine with this. But anyway – Rogor, Weasel, and Skull plan to cheat by hacking into the handicapping system. Remember the red and blue spotlights, the Secor 3000? And uh, I really don't fully understand how those are supposed to work, but they're supposed to make the fight fair. And they're like, we're going to hack it to make it unfair. Well, Weasel and Skull are like, we can do this. We can hack into it. And, uh, and Rogor is like, A, that's impossible. And B, I have another plan that'll work. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Rogor's like no one has ever hacked the 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 Sekor before, uh, but they're they're going to figure it out because because Skull's got like a a computer in uh in his or her brain. Yeah, yeah. They're they're like, again they're they're gonna they're all hopped up on the augments and yeah. think they can take it down. Right. Uh, in the meantime, there's also a great training scene where Steve fights this giant ripped armadillo. He wasn't in the movie much. I think it was just the scene, but I really like this armadillo. I wanted him to be more of a, a character. I think he was supposed to be like a stable mate. So they're just okay. training together because afterwards they're like, hey, you know, pretty good in there, kid. You're doing all right. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> but yeah, just imagine armadillo with like giant muscles. Yeah. Uh, but then there's there's this part where Steve has a romance with this lady who works for Rogor. Now, here's a question I'm, I wasn't sure about the answer to. This woman is somebody who, who comes and meets Steve, and Steve is clearly very interested in her. Are we to understand that she was the woman singing in the hologram earlier? I think she was singing earlier. I can't remember if she's the hologram woman or she was on stage. And okay. She was a performer earlier, for yeah, sure. Okay. But, but, but she is also, we'll find, she's also with Rogor. She's yeah. Rogor's vixen. Right. And she, so she has a brief romance with Steve, uh, but she tries to do something devious. She tries to get Steve to drink something. It's a, it's a mm-hmm. toast to the new championship. And uh, obviously it is the opposite of the vitamin R that they're giving Horn. I don't know what's supposed to be in the drink, but it's, it's something that makes Steve weak. Yeah. The long and short of it is she seduces him and poisons him. And Steve just never think he never even second guesses any of his choices here. Right. Like this just seems like the thing to do uh, when everybody watching it knows exactly what's going to happen. Right. Like that, <laughs> that woman is going to poison you, Steve. That's clearly what's going to happen. Yeah. She like comes over with these two glasses. And he's just like, yep, down the hatch. Yeah. But it's implied that she doesn't – well, she doesn't poison him enough, perhaps. Yes. That's what Rogor ends up uh, accusing his vixen of. It's like, uh, you clearly didn't give him enough poison because he does not die. Right. So he gets to a doctor in time and he's able to fight. So it's the morning of the big fight between Steve and Horn and the, the, the doctors get him in ship shape again. And uh, so so they start the fight. And at first it seems like, you know, it's just uh, an even fight. They're, they're trading blows. Steve's doing good. But then, of course, there is meddling by Weasel and Skull. They're, they're up mm-hmm. there hacking the handicapping system. And it looks like their hacking works. So they, I guess they either turn it off or they meddle with it in such a way that it, that it enhances uh, Horn's power. So Horn really starts getting the upper hand in the fight. And then Shorty has to go to the rescue. He, like, runs up into the catwalks above the fight where the computer system is housed mm-hmm. and shorty shorty uh can slam like he he beats up weasel really good yeah and then we weasel does a a, a nice uh a fall to his death mm-hmm. uh, off the top yeah. oh and skull's head explodes for some reason I oh think, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> it gets too too much the the yeah while he's hacking and then yeah his, his skull explodes and that's pretty pretty nice as well so the ending is quite predictable it is victory for steve steve defeats horn and it's very rocky four but replace mm-hmm. ivan drago with this horned goat beast and replace the soviet union with space yeah <laughs> uh, uh, it again it's just a standard boxing um trope uh, uh-huh. plot line here you know uh, you could you can well imagine like any other some other tropes they could have put in there like they could easily have done a sequel perhaps where you have like an older steve and uh, he's asked to take a dive in one last fight by the mob and refuses mm-hmm. to do it that sort of thing it's that kind of world yeah uh, now there's been this boxing announcer who uh, has has little moments throughout the movie and the movie ends with him talking you know as the crowd is cheering for steve uh it ends with this announcer uttering this very bizarre statement he says as long as there are steve armstrongs out there in the universe there will always be contenders there's something about the tenses <laughs> there i'm not quite sure but but that's arena yeah. So, yeah, it doesn't really mean much. It doesn't really have a message per se. Uh, but it's just it's a it's it's a nice movie with just incredibly uh, weird creatures in it. Just uh, it's a creature fest for the eyes. Yes, it's all about the creatures. That that is the reason to watch this movie is uh, is the creatures. 
So uh, one one thing I wanted to talk about in reference to this film is just um, the idea of having, first of all, interspecies fights. Um, where you have creatures from different species, um, you know, uh, different planets, different ecosystems fighting each other. And again, the idea is that, yes, some creatures are just going to be naturally um, stronger than others, naturally faster than others. And if you want to have fair competition take place between the two, you have to use this handicapping system, this dampening system that makes one of the fighters like physically weaker so that they can have a competitive match. I thought it was interesting that basically all of the difference between the species is uh, conceptualized just in terms of a difference in strength, like just muscle strength. <laughs> you uh-huh. know, how yeah. hard can they throw a punch and not like chemical differences? Like, oh, do they breathe oxygen? Do they have like uh, different types of uh, metabolism and body speed or like heat and cold tolerances? No, it's just everything breathes oxygen. It's all basically like just weird different kinds of creatures, but with standard earth chemistry. Yeah, yeah. You um, you have uh, they don't get too complicated with that. It's yeah. just the other creatures are yeah physically stronger, and in some cases they are cybernetically enhanced, and also sometimes chemically enhanced as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we see all of that, of course, with Horn, who's um, who's just all gnarled muscle and cybernetic enha- enhancements, and and of course bringing in the idea of a bull. You get the idea that he has like bull-like strength. Um, so getting out of the like just purely fantastic side of this, uh, we could say that this film deals with a lot of certainly non-human boxing and interaction between our, our human hero and these various alien and cyborg fighters. And in this, it actually touches on a topic of some academic interest, transhumanism and sports. Huh. I actually ran across a Ph.D. thesis uh, thesis that gets into this regarding boxing specifically. Uh, okay. Ger- Gerard James Brady's Transhumanism and the Transformation of the Experience and Spectacle in the Art of Boxing from 2018. Okay, so is the concept here that, like, how would sports be, inf- uh, be affected by people taking into their physical body sort of different types of technological upgrades that might make them stronger or faster or whatever. Right. What if one boxer in the future uh, is cybernetically augmented or chemically augmented, genetically augmented? Like, what if you end up with one boxer looking like Horn and then he's okay. going in fighting <laughs> an otherwise human boxer? Like, you would kind of, you would create this you would be able to turn what we think of as like normal boxing into this alien spectacle. Mm-hmm. And then what would that mean? So it's, um, it's a long, it's a, you know, a long paper that gets into a lot of the, the nuts and bolts uh, of this, but, but in it, Brady talks about the transhuman quote tipping point in boxing, which he describes as quote, the point at which the athlete is unable to identify the actions and therefore the achievements as his, and also the point where the audience is unable to engage veridically with the athletes. So on the first count, the question is, at what point is the individual just lost in this world of cybernetic, genetic, and or chemical enhancements? Mm-hmm. Horn, for instance, seems to be able, seems to be at least half machine at this point. He benefits from these vitamin R injections. <laughs> so does the sport reach a point where Horn would no longer feel the victories as his own vi- victories? Does the fight cease to feel like a fight? Uh, he does not seem to, uh, at least in the context of this movie, he thinks those victories are his victories. He won't even, he can't stop saying his own name. He's so proud of himself. <laughs> True. He's, he seems really into it. Um, now, interestingly, this is a point in the, I think we can agree, the the, the, the more th- uh, 
thought-provoking film, Robot Jock, does act ask this point. It, it does just sort of raise this question at some point. You know, um, it, at what point is the human inside neither soldier nor pilot, but a mere mechanic, right? Hmm. But uh, but again, they don't really get into that in this film. But but anyway, Brady argues that there's a point at which the athlete will lose interest in the sport if uh, if enough levers are pulled on changing who they are and what they are. And on the other point, the audience has to believe in it enough for it to feel like reality. Now, I think worked and semi-worked sports and fights blur the line a bit here. But yeah, you have to be able to believe in the sport you're presented with or at least be able to suspend your own disbelief in order in order to watch it, right? Well, yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about worked sports. So there you're, you're talking about sports that would involve like a an element of kayfabe or something. Is, th- is that right? right? Yeah, some okay. some degree either it's partially worked or it's entirely worked like uh, like professional wrestling. OK, so in professional wrestling, it, it is a it is a staged theatrical performance that involves athleticism in the theatricality. But uh, but obviously people are still interested in watching it like it's still fun to watch. And so the question is, that's funny, like in professional wrestling, you can know that about it and still enjoy watching it. But if people thought that supposedly real boxing matches, if they were to like suddenly discover that it were worked, that seems like that would make people lose interest in it. You know, well, it, if strange. you know it's worked, then every match has to be entertaining. You know, I mean, yeah, that's true. Uh, I feel like there are certain demands that are made on um on legitimate, I mean, there are certain demands that are in place on work sports that are that aren't there as much on legitimate uh, sports, you know. And they're like, I, I remember seeing it mentioned that well, when you have a a shoot match, when it's like not a work match, sometimes the wrong person wins, you know. Mm-hmm. Like uh, you, you can't orchestrate things to that uh, that degree if it's just a legitimate um, uh, competition for the most part. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, Brady ends up summarizing this this idea of this tipping point by saying, in terms of boxing, my instinct is to say that this point, the tipping point, will be reached if and when the fighters lose their appearance of vulnerability and where it seems as though their struggle and determination to hear the sound of the final bell is removed. I could see that. I mean, that a lot of the appeal of sports, especially a very personal sport like one-on-one boxing, is is a is a drama and a sort of like you're seeing not just a physical contest like who can throw a stronger punch, but it seems to be a a a contest of individual wills. And if you reach a point where it doesn't, you're not really seeing a personality in the fighter anymore uh, come through in their struggle, then maybe the sport loses interest for a lot of spectators. Yeah, and and I think I think this point is inter- is really interesting when we think about arena here, and perhaps this is an area where one might lean in and sort of <laughs> to, to create uh, explanations for what's happening in the film, but. Uh, because I'm thinking like that dampening technology, that handicapping technology, the blue and the red lights in arena, maybe they exist to ensure that the boxing is a struggle uh, for even the naturally powerful or cybernetically enhanced combatants, you know, to keep it a struggle. Uh, so it seems like that it's you know not just about keeping it fair for all the species involved, but making sure that it is, in fact, a rewarding endeavor for both the fighters and the audience. Because the audience want to see a struggle like they, they don't, they don't yeah. want to see just like uh, two machines that are sort of maxed out in their competence, uh, executing their functions appropriately until one of them can't do it anymore. They want yeah. to see a drama. 
Right. And so perhaps the dampening technology is there to ensure drama and to ensure that that both combatants or at least one of them is vulnerable. Right. Because you don't want to just see meat machines, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, wailing on each other. You want to see this tension, this drama of the boxing match. Yeah, I buy that. I mean, I I don't think about things like boxing a whole lot, but that seems uh, that seems like a reasonable read to me. Yeah, I, I know we have some, well, I certainly know we have some uh, combat enthusiasts out there, and I'm sure we have some boxers as well. So I'd be interested to hear what any of you have to say. Again, that uh, that uh, thesis is Transhumanism and the Transformation of the Experience and Spectacle in the Art of Boxing from 2018, and it's available online if you look around for it. Hmm. Well, Rob, should we wrap it up there? I have really enjoyed talking about Arena today. Yeah, I guess it's time to, to wrap it up. Um, First of all, let's uh, touch on where you get this film. Uh, I think a full version of this film has been up on YouTube for a number of years. Uh, I'm not sure where you, you were able to watch it, Joe, but I rem- I saw it there. Yeah, it's there. And then uh, I watched it on this wonderful uh, packet from Shout Factory. They put out a four a four picture pack titled Sci-Fi Movie Marathon, and it includes America Three Thousand Arena. Eliminators and the Time Guardians, uh, which has Carrie Fisher in it, oh. and you can get this four this four movie pack for about eight bucks. So nice. definitely worth checking out. Uh, I, I want to mention I looked for for this film here but didn't see it. But we had a listener named Golden Sardine. I think that that is their birth name. Uh, they wrote in and they wanted to tell us about. Tubi, T-U-B-I. They said, quote, at the end of the Robot Jocks episode, you mentioned that it was hard to find on streaming. Well, I'm pleased to say that there is a very good resource for streaming trash movies for free. It's called Tubi. It has both Robot Jocks and Robot Wars. I recently watched Chopping Mall after you reviewed. I've been hitting the holiday horror of late with winners like Jack Frost, Thanks Killing, and Ginger Dead Man. Other future garbage I have my eye on includes Puppet Masters, Demonic Toys plus Crossover, and Stay Tuned. Is Stay Tuned a movie, or were they saying to Stay Tuned? I think Stay Tuned is, if I'm not mistaken, <laughs> it is one of the um, Crossing Channels films. Um, uh, okay. This whole sort of in the wake of cable and satellite television, you had a number of different films come out about people being sucked into various TV channels, uh, mm-hmm. which is a, a subgenre that I find very fascinating. Uh, but I think Stay Tuned was one of those. Also, before we close out here, I want to mention, I don't think I've mentioned this on the show before, uh, but uh, I have a website uh, titled samutamusic.com. Samuta Music is the music in Dune, which uh, sim- which drug addicts listen to, to um, uh, to, to, to like correspond with their, their space drug high. But that's uh, S-E-M-U-T-A music.com. Uh, that's where I've been putting up uh, blog posts mostly about Weird House Cinema these days. So when Weird House Cinema goes up, I put a little blog post up, and if there's any related media that I need a link to, I throw it in there as well. Nice. All right, so we're, yeah, we'll go ahead and close out this episode of Weird House Cinema. As always, uh, if you want to support the show, uh, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is the main show. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is the podcast feed. We just put out a little Weird House every week on Friday, uh, you know, just to spice things up a little bit. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. 
For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.